0: If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn in them to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, chapter number 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under the chair in front of you. You can grab that. Turn to page 160 in that Bible and you'll be at 1 Thessalonians, chapter number 4. You know, next to food, sex is the most thought about talked about subject on the planet earth talk about sex can surface at school it can surface on the job we see it in television and in movies Uh, we certainly see it in music videos and there are a myriad of opinions that people have about sex whether they are male or female And here's what I want you to do. I want you to watch and listen to this clip. And notice the different perspectives and the different voices. I'm not a virgin anymore. There's no going back. I just got a divorce after 10 years of marriage. You can't expect me to just stop. We're just fooling around. We don't go all the way. Come on. I'm in my physical prime. It's unhealthy to deny myself. We're not ready for marriage yet, but we're ready for the next step in our relationship. Look, it's not like I'm out cruising bars or something. I'm in a committed relationship. Come on, I'm married, not blind. It's just sex. Everyone I know is doing it. What goes on behind closed doors in my own home is no one's business but my own. It's just a joke email my buddy sent me. It's just a video. I'm just looking for love. It's just sex. The church tells us not to. Those were rules created thousands of years ago before birth control when life expectancy was what? The world says it's okay. I mean, we use protection. You know what? It's really just between me and my boyfriend. It's just sex. If I'm looking for a commitment for the rest of my life, I just want to be sure that he's the one. It's perfectly normal behavior. Come on, it's sex. It's not a sin. I mean, it's not like we're committing murder. God created sex, right? So what's wrong with it, then? It's just sex. It's just sex. I'm not a virgin anymore. So what's wrong with it? Then? A lot of different voices, a lot of different opinions, a lot of different perspectives. It's just sex. Is it really just sex? You know, the key question we need to be asking about the subject matter of sex is the question what does God think about it? And I want to talk today about the subject that God cares about sex. And you might be saying, wait a minute, Bruce, how did we get on to that subject? I mean, good gracious. Well, we have been involved here at Wildwood in a study of the book of 1 Thessalonians. Where the emphasis of the book of 1 Thessalonians is keeping spiritually straight in a crooked world. And if you don't have one of our outlines, they are available on the information table out in the hallway. But we have come to a section of the book of 1 Thessalonians where Paul gives a call to sexual purity. And again, you might be thinking, is this really necessary for us to talk about this subject on, on a Sunday morning? I mean, we, we have a mixed group here. We have uh, young people here. Well, let me just say a couple of things. One is that God thought it was necessary because he made it part of the Bible. Looking at that video clip, I think it is necessary because we see there is a lot of flawed thinking that is going on in our culture. There was a survey done by NBC News and People Magazine, and here's what that survey found. It said that 87% of the teens who were surveyed from the age of 13 to 16, 13 to 16, 87% of them said they had not had sexual intercourse. And we think, well, that sounds really good. And that is good. But notice some other statistics from the survey. 37% of those aged 15 to 16 said they had touched another person's genitals or private parts. Nineteen percent of those 15 to 16 had experienced oral sex. And of that group, 40% said that they did oral sex in order to avoid sexual intercourse. In the same survey... Students who had never been sexually intimate at all said the reason why they hadn't been sexually intimate, several reasons, Um, 75% said they felt like they were too young. Uh, A great group of them feared the potential consequences of sexual activity. Uh, 74% feared pregnancy. Um, 71% sexually transmitted diseases. And... um, 65% of them said that they didn't engage in sexual intimacy because of their parents' potential reaction to it. And by the way, those are a number of good reasons for not becoming sexually intimate. But there's something missing. Did you notice it? What does God think about sexual intimacy? And what we're going to look at This week and next week is some timeless counsel. And in particular, we're going to look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. And what I would like to do is read through those eight verses and invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read through them. Notice what Paul writes to the Thessalonians and he writes to us. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk, That you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. We want to talk about how God cares about sex. And and today is going to be part number one because we're not going to be able to get through all the information here. But here's basically what we want to look at in this section of Scripture. Two things. First of all, we're going to see God's core counsel. And we see that in verses 1 to 3a. And if I were going to sum up God's core counsel to us, it would be this, excel in pleasing God. That is His core counsel to us. But particularly, we want to look, secondly, at the specific challenge that he gives us in verses 3b to verse 8. And if I were going to sum up that specific challenge, it would be keep sex sacred. Keep sex sacred. So those are the two things we want to look at. We won't get all the way through it, but we're going to at least begin. So let's first of all start looking at God's core counsel. And uh, I just want you to notice the, the, the couple of verses that end chapter 3 because there was a prayer that he gives there in chapter 3 about how we um, might increase and abound in our love for one another and how he may establish our hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father. And that just sets us up for verse 1 of chapter 4. And you notice verse 1 begins with the word Finally, then, I like Sam Gordon's definition of an optimist. Here's what he says an optimist is. He says, when the preacher says, finally, an optimist believes that he's really almost finished, you know, and that holds true here. Because in chapters 1 to 3, if you total up the verses, there are 43 verses. When he says, finally, in chapter 4, there are 40, four, 45 more verses that follow. So uh, what's he going here when he says, finally, then, brethren? The idea here is, is that, that he is shifting up to a higher gear. He is shifting to some strong exhortation that he wants to give to us. You'll notice it says there in the verse, We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received instruction f- from us as to how you ought to walk and please God, that you excel still more. The New Living Translation says, We urge you to live in a way that pleases God. What is our natural tendency? You know what my natural tendency is? It's very simple. My natural tendency is to please myself. And that's what your natural tendency is also. But he says what he really wants us to do is rather not just please ourselves, but please God. And just like uh, parents who have human children, one of the things you want with your children is you want them to make pleasing choices in their life. And the same thing is true of us as children of God. We need to make choices as we live our life that God finds pleasing. We request and exhort you that you walk and please God. And notice it says, just as you actually do. In other words, he is commending them. He is encouraged by what he sees in their life. He says, you are living a life that is pleasing to God. But does he say, okay, now you ought to just sit back from there? No. What does he go on to say? That you excel still more. If you remember the whole flow of the book, they had done very, very well in the way they were living their life. In fact, Paul said, you have become an example to other people. And some of us here have been examples to other people in the way we walk with God. But that doesn't mean that we just go into coast mode. In fact, John Calvin said this, those who far outdistance others are still a long way from the goal. And it's just like in the area of money, we always look at the people who have the least and we kind of compare ourselves to that. And the same thing can be true in our spiritual life. We look at people that are really messing up and we say, well, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty well. But we're still a long way from the goal. What's the goal? The goal is to be like Jesus. The goal is to be like Christ. And so our, our walk with God, our pleasing walk with Him, is to have continual improvement. One of the things I've learned in the spiritual life over the 30-some years I've been really focused on growing spiritually is that the level of spirituality, the level of maturity that I have is never static. It never stays right where it is. At any one given point, I am either growing or I am drifting backwards spiritually. And the same thing is true for all of us. We're either growing at any given point or we're drifting backwards. And so here's what, here's what Paul is really saying to us here. Don't settle for spiritual complacency. Rather, he says, what I want you to do is I want you to soar on to new heights. Excel still More. And then he says in verse two, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And the the wording here is, is military wording. He says, we gave you marching orders. We gave you truth to live by. And it's truth that is valid for every generation. And notice he goes on to say in verse three, for this is the will of God. One of three times in the New Testament, that the will of God is very specifically stated. This is the will of God, your sanctification. The New Living Translation says God wants you to be holy. That is the will of God, whether you're young or whether you are older. Now, when we say terms like sanctification and holy and holiness, it's interesting how we have certain connotations Certain clothes, emotional clothes that we put on those words. We think about being holy and maybe we think of a, of a monk in a monastery and we think of dour faces and, and a life that is devoid of fun. That's not what holiness is all about. In fact, if you take the word sanctification, holy, holiness, they're all related terms. The idea of the terms is that we have been set apart by God as special. That affects the way we choose to live our life. We have been set apart by him as special. I like to say holiness is everyday spiritual business that we are to be about. We're to be growing in godliness. We talk about shining as light. What does that really mean? It means that part of our aim is to be a beacon of godliness and purity in our life. Now, again, God knows every one of our hearts. Let me just ask you the question, though, for you to wrestle with the Holy Spirit for just a moment. Could it be that some of us here today are really coasting spiritually, which really means that we're drifting spiritually? Could you be someone... Who is just sitting back in some spiritual complacency? What does Paul want you to do? I mean, compared to others, things may be great. But the message that he has for you and for me is, would you soar on from where you are? Excel still more. That means that in this year, we ought to shine brighter than we did last year. Because we need to continue to grow And we need to continue to grow in our dependence on Him. So God's core counsel here is excel in pleasing God. That's the message. But, you know, that's a concept, and we need some more specifics. And so the specific challenge He begins to give to us at the second part of verse 3 is that we are to keep, this is what it looks like to excel in pleasing God, we keep sex sacred. Very practical. Notice verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, let's get specific he says here, that you, every one of us, abstain from sexual immorality. The New Living Translation says, keep clear of it in your life. And this this phrase, sexual immorality, is one particular word in the original, it's the word porneia, p-o-r. N-E-I-A. And it is a very wide term. It includes sexual activity, whether someone is married or someone is single. It is a term that includes all sexual impropriety. Porneia includes premarital sex. It includes extramarital sex. It includes casual sex. It includes living together and having sex. It includes pornography. In fact, the word pornography comes from the word porneia. And pornography is nothing more than mental sex. And again, I like the New Living Translation here. It says, keep clear of all sexual sin. You know, one of the things I love about the Bible is the Bible is just so real, isn't it? It's so real. It intersects right where we live. And what's really interesting is that when you look at the Thessalonians, sexual impurity was, was a tremendous part of their culture. They were in a port city. They were at a, a traveling crossroads like, the, like I, the interstate highways came through there. All kinds of things were happening. And sexual impurity was also part of their cultic religious life. If you go back and study their gods, you know that the pagan gods and the pagan goddesses were sexually immoral. They were portrayed that way. And so you had all kinds of effect that happened to those who were living in that culture. And sexual impurity, this is part of where God is surreal. It's part of the fabric of, of our culture. You know, our Hollywood gods and goddesses are very frequently sexually immoral. Our sports gods and goddesses are often sexually immoral and involved in sexual impropriety. And even many of our business gods and goddesses also are involved in sexual impropriety. Now, before we wade deeper into these verses, and as I said, we're not going to get through them completely today, I want to look at at three things. I, I want to, first of all, look at some flawed thinking that occurs in our culture. And then the second thing I want to look at is that sex is indeed sacred. And then the third thing I want to look at very briefly is that detours will breed consequences. Detours from sacred sex will breed consequences. So some flawed thinking, sex is indeed sacred and detours breed consequences. So let's look at those three things before we go deeper into these verses. First of all, I want to look at some flawed thinking. I'm just going to randomly pick out some flawed thinking that exists in our culture today. Here's what some flawed thinking is. Some people have the attitude that goes something like this. I just want to cut... Got out of the sexual part of my life. I don't want God involved in that part of my life. It's just like, you know, God, stay out of that part of my life. It's almost as if people are saying to God, what I want you to do, God, is would you just sit quietly over there until I need you, but don't mess with this part of my life. And there's some problems with that. One of the problems is, is that God invented sex. It's the truth. God was the one who invented sex. He came up with the idea. He carefully designed, very carefully designed the male body. And He very carefully designed the female body. And since He is the inventor of sex, He, I think, would have some idea of the how of sex and the where of sex, and the when of sex. And as the Creator, He's worthy of being listened to when it comes to this subject matter. Then there's some other flawed thinking I want to talk about for just a moment. And, and this flawed thinking goes something like this. Sex, it's just a, it's just a physical thing. I mean, as got stated on the video clip there, it's just sex. But it's a whole lot more than that. Sexual activity has connected to it a built-in, this is what a lot of people don't understand, a built-in binding factor. There's a complexity to sex. And when we talk about people having sex, there is a union that occurs, not only of the body, but of the soul and the spirit. And when people have sex with one another, they really take a small piece of another person's soul. That is why when people give themselves to one another sexually, and this is especially very obvious with girls, there is a strong sense of attachment that happens. It's just because that's the way sex was designed. To sort of bind people together. Chip Ingram tells the story of Jimmy. Jimmy was like a lot of uh, young men in our culture. He was a great looking guy, very athletic, played basketball, played baseball. And at one time he sat down with Chip and he was sharing his his life story with him. And he he startled Chip a little bit by saying, you know, I spent most of my life being an idolater. By that, he says, I was basically worshiping me he said, when we traveled playing sports, um, I found out playing sports and excelling at them and being good looking attracted a lot of ladies. And uh, sex became the perk that went with that. And he went on to say, Jimmy did, he said, some days, um, multiple times, I, I would have sex with different girls, even on the same day. And he said, my life revolved around sex for three years. But then he, he went on to he say this, he said, One day I woke up and I was numb. He said, I didn't feel anything. I didn't, I didn't really know how to have a relationship. I was like someone who stuck his hand in a fire over and over. The first few times the jolts were memorable, but once the hand got burned enough and the nerves died under the ugly scars, the hand stopped feeling. My body actually came to the point that it didn't respond. I was a sexual burnout. Now listen to what he goes on to say. My heart got dull. My brain couldn't respond. And then Chip says, I will never forget his tone of deep sadness in his voice as he murmured these words. There's a little piece torn from me that I left with each of those women that I can never get back. He described his years of indulgence and selfish sex by comparing it to being a piece of cardboard. Every time he had sex, he was being glued to another piece of cardboard just long enough for the glue to dry. And when the pieces were pulled apart, neither piece of cardboard came away whole. I want you to keep your finger in First Thessalonians 4 and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want you to notice a couple of verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Part of the problem in the culture is we don't really understand sex. It's not just merely a physical thing at all. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I want you to notice verse 15. Paul says to these believers, by the way, Corinth was so sex-saturated. But he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? And what he's really referring to here is their religious practice is that there would be people at the pagan temples who would have sex with you. That's what he's talking about here. But the principle is true. No matter who the person is, if it's not someone you're married to, should I take away a member of Christ and make them members of someone that I'm not married to? And he says, may it never be. Now here we go, verse 16. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? See what he's saying? He's saying there's a bonding that takes place in sexual activity. The two shall become one flesh. There is a true, real, it's a mysterious thing, but in sexual activity, there is an intertwining that occurs. There is a unity that begins to happen of body, soul, and spirit. And we need to understand that. To miss that is very flawed thinking. Now, there's some other flawed thinking I want to share with you. And, and, and that is, you saw a little bit of this on the video clip. This flawed thinking goes something like this. Hey, listen, when it comes to sex, and I'm going to get married someday... But before that, I need to put in some practice time. And I need to have a little bit of practice because when I get married, I don't want to be bad at this. I don't want to get married and wonder if I'm doing it right. So what I need to do is I need to start practicing now. But what people who think that way fail to understand is that, again, sex has been designed by God. And it's been designed by God to be an adventure... Between a husband and a wife, two people committed together for a lifetime. That's the way it was designed. It's designed by God to be an adventure that a man and his wife would have, an adventure that they would just explore together as husband and wife. No need for practice time in order to fulfill God's plan. Now there's a second thing. Just having looked at some flawed thinking, we could spend a lot of time there. The second thing we want to look at is the truth that sex is indeed sacred. You remember that James 1.17 says that every gift that we have comes down to us from the Father of lights. And sex is a gift from His hand. But it's a gift. Now hear me here. This is what's very important to understand. And I'm I'm summarizing biblical teaching here. It's a gift for, here we go, married people only. It's a gift for married people only. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. I want you to see a critical verse. And I have been pointing people to this verse since my days in college. Take them back to it. 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 Sex is a gift from His hand. For married people only it is sacred. Notice chapter 13, verse 4. He says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all. In other words... We get a lot of just slamming of marriage, and that's because it's marriage not done God's way. He says, let's lift marriage up. Marriage is to be held in honor, up high, for people to see. And notice it goes on to say, in the marriage bed, that's when a husband and wife come together, is to be undefiled for fornicators those who have sex before they are married, and adulterers, those who have sex with somebody else after they are married, God will judge. He's saying here, in essence, sex is sacred. It is a wondrous thing that God has created. It is a pleasurable thing. He desired that sex would be pleasurable, that it would be physically exciting and emotionally satisfying. But it is sacred. And, and sometimes we just undersell how, how much God designed into this sexual relationship. You, you don't, we don't have time to look at it, but you can go and you know there's a whole book of the Old Testament, a whole book of the Old Testament called the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon that deals with the fact that he designed sex to be wondrous and pleasurable for married people. And, and, and again, I've got to show you these verses. Go to Proverbs chapter 5. You know, in the middle of your Bible you have the book of Psalms and then you have the book of Proverbs right after that. And I want you to notice Proverbs chapter 5. And I have brought people to these verses multiple times since my days in college. Very important to see these verses. Proverbs chapter 5. Verse 18, he says, let your fountain be blessed. The whole idea here is there's a word picture of water flowing and it's, it's sexual language. Okay? Let your fountain be blessed. This is what God says. Let your fountain be blessed and, uh, and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breasts... This is God speaking... Let her breast, the breasts of your wife, satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Very, very strong language in the original Hebrew. This is literally what it says to a husband. Get drunk on the sexual love of your wife. You see, God has designed this to be very wondrous and very, very pleasurable. And he basically says, go out and get drunk on your wife's love. It is an honorable and sacred thing. It was created for the glory of God. Can I hear an amen this morning out there? From married people, I hope. Uh, Yeah, all right, I got one. Sex is sacred, and it's interesting if you go back, travel back with me to First Thessalonians, I want you to see something that's interesting. It is a sacred thing, but there are three negative terms that he comes up with here to describe the violation of God's sacred plan. The first we've already seen, it's in verse 3. Abstaining from sexual immorality, from porneia. Another term he comes up with is verse 5. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles and the pagans. And then in verse 7 he has another negative term. He called us not for the purpose of impurity. In the context, this is talking about sexual impurity. He says, don't go that way. Keep it sacred. Keep it according to my plan. Sex is Sacred. Now, what does that mean? It means it's not to be handled casually. We're not to view it as some mere hookup that we have. It's designed by God to be a true adventure. And He desires... This is the truth. He desires... For those who are married, to experience to to its fullest potential. In fact, He desires for every one of us, even before we are married, that we would wait so that we could experience to its fullest potential without guilt, without shame, and without negative consequences. You see, that's what God wants for you. He wants you to experience sex to its fullest potential without guilt, without shame, and without negative consequences. And speaking of negative consequences, we want to look... At the idea that detours from God's plan breeds consequences. We don't have great rivers here. I mean, this is not a great river state. But you know, great rivers are very beautiful. They're very exciting and they can be fun to get on and have fun on. Especially if you can do white water rafting on them. They're fun and exciting and beautiful when they stay inside of their banks. But when a river comes outside of its banks, that's when there is damage and destruction. And the same thing is true of sex. If it flows inside of the banks and the boundaries that God has given to, it, it's a beautiful and wonderful thing. But once it starts to flow outside of the boundaries, then damage will surface. Go back with me real quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, I just want to look at this real fast. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6 again. And this time I want to, I want to look at uh, verse 18. He says there, flee, run from sexual immorality. And then also he says, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man, the sexually immoral man or person, sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own? For you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. There are consequences, he says, that will come when you take sex outside of the banks. They could be sexually transmitted diseases, they can be pregnancies, they can be emotional trauma and scars... It can deflate, listen, it can deflate. Getting involved in sex outside of marriage can deflate your relationship with God. It can take the bounce out of it. And, and there are negative ramifications to sexual impropriety. Some of us have personally experienced that in our lives. We could take testimony. Some of us have witnessed that. Some of us have just heard about it. And the sexual impropriety and the negative ramifications has affected individual lives, individual families. It's affected churches. It's affected communities and nations. Inside of marriage, sex is designed to be pleasurable and fulfilling. But when we take it outside, oh, maybe not initially we'll be aware of it, but eventually we will be burned and we will be hurt by it. I want you to hear the, the story of Amy that she tells about her friend. She says, I have a friend whose relationships always start out great, and then they get torn apart. She gets so attached because she's been sexually active with them. We're talking, we were talking one weekend, and she said this to me. You don't know how awesome I think it is that you're not going to have sex until you're married. I wish I, I would have done that. She knows it's wrong, but sex has been such a big part of her life the past six years. She wishes she could stop it. She says she can't. She doesn't know how to have a relationship without it. And my thought is, when are we going to learn that God knows what He's talking about? When are we going to learn that as a culture? It's interesting. Research was done by the Bethesda Research Group came out in the Washington Post. Here's what it concluded. Listen to this. Couples who strongly believe that sex outside of marriage is wrong are a whopping 31% more satisfied in their sex lives. Now that's something. They say sex is for marriage. They are 31% more satisfied with their sex life. And here's also interesting, those who cohabitate or live together before marriage have a 50% higher possibility of divorce than those who don't live together before marriage. And researchers at UCLA discovered that not only do those who cohabitate have a higher level of divorce, they're more likely to commit adultery once they get married. I think God knows what He's talking about. I just think that He does. And by the way, I want to say this this morning. If you are single and you are still a virgin... I want to applaud you. I want to applaud you because you've made the right choices. God cares about sex. Now, as I said, today is just part number one. I mean, we aren't going to be able to get through this. You have to come back next week because he's got a whole lot more to say and we've got a whole lot more that we need to look at. But as we close today, I want to to talk about some life response that I think we can have coming out of our little time with these verses. And and that life response involves two ideas. Number one is to recalibrate, and number two is to repent. I think one life response that God wants from us is He wants us to recalibrate a little bit. Here's what I would like to suggest that you do. I don't care whether you're older or whatever. I would like you to, every day for the next week, I want you to read 1 Thessalonians 4, 1-8. I want you to read through those verses and think about, does God want me to recalibrate anything in my life? And you might also ask yourself this question, if you believe that sex is sacred, how should that be displayed in my life right now? What would it look like to be consistent with my belief that sex is sacred? So we need to, I believe, and God wants us to and desires us to recalibrate a little bit. I need to do the same thing. And then the second thing, second possible life response is that maybe God wants us to repent. Again, I don't know your secret life and you don't know mine. But maybe some of us have been stepping over God's line and we know that we have been out of bounds. Maybe some of us have done some pretty shameful things. We've been with the wrong people in wrong places at the wrong time. And the reality is, of course, that God knows every sorrowful detail of those things. And yet, here's the amazing thing, that is why He sent His Son to pay our debt. I love Isaiah 1.18. I mean, I just love it. It says, Though our sins are as scarlet, they can be as white as snow. Though our sins are red like crimson, It can be like wool. Jesus can break the power of sin in your life. Jesus can cleanse you. Jesus can restore you. And by His grace and His power, He can give you the strength to start over again if that's what's needed. Let's just pray together. Father, we thank You again for just such a great passage and it's so real and so needed in our day. And each one of us needs this. And I would pray, Father, that You would help us to realize we are a temple of the Holy Spirit and there may be some significant recalibration that needs to happen. And Father, maybe for some of us there really needs to be some significant repenting where we change our mind and we confess some things to you and, that, and we change our actions coming out of that. But I would pray, Father, there would be nobody who would be discouraged and feel they were hopeless or they've made too many mistakes or they're like a jimmy who felt like they completely failed, but they might realize that when they come to You and ask for Your forgiveness, that You are there with it and that You can cleanse them and You can restore them and You can take them and make them white as snow. I pray that You'll do great things in all of our lives coming out of our study of this section of 1 Thessalonians. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.